Welcome to The World We Got This podcast, brought to you by King's College London. In this series, we take a look at the complex issues of the world today. We ask those researching and studying these fields about the challenges we face and what society needs to do to help solve them. This is an In Conversation episode with PhD student Dr. Vignesh Rajamani and Professor Christoph Jaffrilo, Professor of Indian Politics and Sociology at the King's India Institute. Vignesh's research investigates how the Dravidian movement in Tamil Nadu in southern India evolved from being a grassroots social movement that challenged caste hierarchy into a viable political party that has had a lasting impact on the political ethos and identity of Tamil Nadu. The strong regional emphasis of the movement has also impacted national politics and federalism in India. Studying the Dravidian movement offers unique insights into the potential of identity politics to achieve social justice. Now, on to the conversation. Hello and welcome to this episode of the World We Got This podcast. I'm Christophe Jaffrelot, Professor of Political Science at King's in this capacity, but also as a research lead for the Global Institutes. Today we are talking to Vignesh Rajamani, who has just completed his PhD under my co-supervision uh, from the King's India Institute. And uh, we'll first, of course, ask Vignesh, uh, who is, by the way, celebrating a job offer today, to introduce himself, and he will tell you more about him and, of course, the topic. Thank you very much, Professor. Thank, thanks very much for the opportunity. And yes, uh, I did get a job offer today in the morning. Uh, my name is Vignesh, and I just finished my PhD at King's College London, working with you, Professor Jaffalo, and then Dr. Kriti Kapila on how social movements transform to party politics in India. And the case study that I look at is uh, the Dravidian movement, which is in the south of India, and then the transformation of the Dravidian movement to electorally viable party politics by understanding the trajectory of the DMK. And other than that, I have been a policy and a political consultant in India for almost five years now, before starting the PhD and during my PhD as well. And uh, I am largely interested in discourse, resource and personal as pivots of elections in India and how social movements can lead to a politics of you know, social justice, recognition and redistribution. Oh, we will return to all these entry points in your research for sure. Let me cite the title of your PhD because it's a, a rather explicit title, The Dravidian Pathway, and the Transition of a Social-Cultural Movement into Party Politics between Periyar Evi Ramaswamy and C.N. Anadurai. DMK is clearly the earth of the matter here. What led you to pursue a PhD in the first place and a PhD on such a topic, Vignesh? The short answer to this is your book, uh, India Silent Revolution. But if I was to expand a little bit, my training was in business studies in undergraduation and I was in Loyola College, which in itself was a very political space, but it was all in the undertone. And I also joined my college just in the aftermath of the Sri Lankan Civil War. And the college was abuzz with what needs to be done for the Sri Lankan Tamils that were stuck there in 2009, in the aftermath of the war. I think I was good at business studies that I studied because I landed a job in Goldman Sachs. But then 
the politics aspect of it led me to pursue you know something else and i wanted to do social sciences and humanities and the course then that i picked was at king's college london and at the king's india institute as well which is the ma in modern india where i met you first and uh, so professor kilnani professor tillin dr kapila and the late ian jack as well i attended as many classes as possible and i also got to sort of you know work with the ministry of social justice at that the capacity of being an intern i have always seen tamil nadu from a, a comparative perspective because i have not lived in the state much so all of these learnings plus my masters dissertation which was on the transition or the political change in uttar pradesh in the 1990s which stems more directly from your book india silent revolution i then wanted to unpack what made tamil nadu a lot more resilient uh, in terms of political change and you know uh, the assertion of the marginalized compared to let's say in uttar pradesh the learnings in a certain sense are also on the lines of uh, the discourse in tamil nadu by a considerable section of its elites and the middle class and their antipathy or apathy towards the politics and political parties in the state which is a important case in point for me and by elites i mean anyone who exhibit hegemonic tendencies irrespective of their gender class or caste location on learning over the years one idea was that mere perception of the hegemonic elite uh, can trump the empirical and lived realities of the marginalized and therefore i thought let's understand the case of tamil nadu because it's not a state that's really you know appreciated or it's not a political change that that is appreciated by its elite the comparison or the comparative approach is clearly a great motivation and we can understand your frustration it was all about the gujarat model it was all about uh, how the north is dominating uh, indian politics and showing the way to explore the dravidian trajectory or what is known also as the dravidian model to paraphrase the title of a recent famous book vignesh for those who are not uh, familiar with indian politics who are really non initiated Uh, how would you define the dravidian movement and uh, how would you uh, contextualize it at the indian level thank you professor so dravidian movement is a comprehensive phrase given to a host of anti elite movements in tamil nadu uh, and in madras state madras presidency in the late 19th and early 20th centuries so it it at least is marked by four or five strands as we can look at today but to put together it is essentially a movement that is marked by and i'm borrowing from nancy fraser's famous triad which is marked by recognition of particularistic grievances of marginalized communities redistribution of resources and representation in power so it is essentially a movement that is marked by social justice and also cultural distinctiveness put together but what distinguishes it from an otherwise revivalist movement as people may perceive it to be is the way in which it is interested in the present and the future and the past is only a pivot to sort of you know move or be interested in the present and the future yes and you uh, emphasize the social dimension and and rightly so of course it is an ethno social movement because Dravidian languages are the languages of South India. They form a family: Tamil, Malayalam, Telugu, Kannada. In opposition to the um, languages of the North and the West, which are, uh, of course, deriving from Sanskrit. But what is so interesting, and that's what you show in your PhD, is that on the basis of a linguistic identity, 
because of a social composition and social dynamic, the uh, ideologues have been in a position to create a, a new repertoire and to ethnicize caste to some extent and make caste such a powerful vehicle for social change using culture, language as a cementing force. This is key in your demonstration uh, and uh, those who will uh, read it will enjoy it uh, also for that reason. Now, of course, you need to tell those who have not read your PhD in a nutshell, what have you discovered? What have you shown? So if I was to sort of, you know, broadly put it, one major or central argument of the finding of the thesis is that a sufficiently capacious political identity, which is purposively accommodative of the aspirations of multiple marginalized communities, and which is conceived by a subaltern political class through conscious political action, can result in recognition of particularistic grievances, redistribution of resources, and representation in power for those marginalized communities. And it need not always be discussed under the tropes of identity politics as if they are bad. And such a process of democratization serves as a bulwark against the onslaught of hegemonic forces uh, in the social, cultural, economic, or even the political realms. And that also explains the reason why Tamil Nadu people vote the way they vote today. And in terms of chapterization, the way I go about it is, again, informed by my theoretical framework, which again, I draw from your work, which is an integrated theory in ethnic nationalism which breaks away from the rather infamous trope of ethnic nationalism being exclusive and limited as against the ability for the realm of ethnic nationalism to provide an empowering space. So the first chapter starts with how an identity is constructed through an ideology, an ideology-driven identity that is constructed by the political class and also informed by the people and how they change it, how they make it a lot more agile. And then it moves to the dissemination aspect of it. And I discuss this through the vantage point of reading rooms, which is also a new contribution. So far, the Dravidian movement has been studied in the vantage point of, you know, movies or pop culture references, which is also very important. But I look at it from the perspective of how the people of Madras or uh, the Tamil people were actually a reading public as against a viewing public. And I tie those loose ends, which are the breaks in the literature. So once I look at this dissemination, I then talk about how uh, a repertoire is constructed, uh, the Dravidian Tamil repertoire, and how the developments in, in India and in Madras state, starting from the independence and then the first amendment that they bring in, and then the reorganization of states, T56, and then the Chinese War of 1962, the anti-secession bill of 19, which followed the Chinese War, and then the anti-Hindi agitations of 1965 and then the victory of the DMK. So how all of these instances are rendered within the repertoire of the Dravidian Tamil ethos. So how an issue is perceived and then rendered in one's own vocabulary and repertoire, which then leads to a very consolidated sort of victory in 1967 and the defeat of a stalwart of the Congress party, which is K. Kamraj, who also helped the furthering of Dravidian movement, but even he had to be defeated at some point, not as an idea, but as an, as an electoral candidate. So the movement then goes back to sort of, you know, conserve him as an idea. And this is how I present it. But at the same time, this does not just stop with oh, a great story of the movement transitioning into party politics, but also what they missed. For instance, women representation has been abysmally low and continues to be the case. And what has been a reading public is not now a reading public anymore. Tamil Nadu is also, uh, you know, susceptible to uh, misinformation campaigns and also a lot of propaganda recently. 
So I, I also try and address these things in the epilogue section of, of the thesis. Great. We see that you stop in 1967, which is um, somewhat challenging, which is also not so common for particular science PhDs, uh, which most of the time deal with contemporary issues. This is, of course, uh, necessarily with implications in terms of methods. It's historical. It's um, something that makes uh, participatory observation, of course, more difficult, even impossible. So how, how have you operated? And, and, and of course, the subtext there is, on the one hand, you can rely on ethnographic techniques, interviewing those who can remember what happened in the past, but you have to check whether they remember correctly. On the other hand, you have aggregated data, you have electoral results, but you can also build your own uh, data set. So the qualitative dimension and the qualitative dimension, uh, how have they been combined in your PhD? And, and do you believe in mixed methods at the end of the day? Again, the short answer is yes. And this also comes from Dr. Kriti Kapila, who's also a co-supervisor, who's a very uh, a big proponent and a supporter of mixed methods approach. And I'd like to quote you again with in an interview from with Ed Anderson, where you speak about you know the importance of studying India in itself uh, in a mixed methods framework, and the importance to sort of look at at least the simultaneous processes, to say the least, to understand you know the complex outcomes that India produces or even regions within India produce. So on that note, I do deploy a considerably full range of mixed methods from qualitative to quantitative ethnographic to building a data set. So it starts with archival study, writing and speeches of Periyar and Anadurai, you know, and also Madras State uh, Legislative Assembly and Rajya Sabha debates. And there are also selected works of Nehru that I reach out to because of uh, the role of Rajaji in Tamil Nadu and, or in Madras State and also uh, Kamraj. And also the who's who documents of the state assembly, which is actually a treasure trove of information. And then I also move on to unstructured and semi-structured interviews with senior politicians of the major political parties at the time, which is like DMK, Congress, Satantra Party, Communist Party, and also the allied organizations of respective parties. There, are, there have also been a few journalists that I spoke to, sub-regional chroniclers, they call themselves historians. A few of them who actually have uh, degrees in history were also historians. In fact, almost 60 of them. And I've only mentioned 20 to 25 of them. And the reason for that is, which you just mentioned, which is they have told me a, a whole lot of things, but I could not find corroborative evidence in the archives. So therefore, um, the 60 interviews actually uh, looks like 25 interviews in my thesis. And yes, participant observation was very key because I did go to the reading rooms that have existed since 1900s, run by the Congress, run by the DMK, run by Justice Party and even the DK or even caste associations for that matter. The India's elite now would like to imagine caste associations as a space that is worth scorning. I think uh, caste associations in Tamil Nadu had actually helped democratization and also uh, empowerment in a certain sense uh, or also the spread of education. And these reading rooms are uh, continue to be the testament of it. For instance, a guy in uh, or, or an 80-year-old, today's 80-year-old in Vridhanagar district where I did my thesis fieldwork actually read about Marx, Plato and even Mazzini from those libraries run by caste associations and even the knowledge of English. Communist parties, uh, the CPI, CPMs, newspapers still come to those reading rooms where people continue to read them. 
then i move on to election uh, results data which is a core element of how i back my uh, findings uh, which is which is to see uh, a correlation though i don't speak about causation a lot in my thesis because of my uh, disciplinarian investment and i also built two data sets one is the caste profiles of winners of the state legislative assembly elections between 1951 and 67 and by this i mean jati level and this is this is essentially almost four elections i don't look at by elections but four elections 200 people is almost 1000 people whose uh, whose caste data that we have and uniquely there would be somewhere around 600 to 700 people so who are these people what kind of change had been effectuated and also i draw an estimate of the number of reading rooms that existed in tamil nadu or in madras state between 1957 and 67 but this i don't explicitly mention in my thesis because this is a uh, drawn from the work of margaret ross barnett before which was then uh, you know juxtaposed with the regional chroniclers and also uh, the dmk party historians so this this finds a place in the appendix section of my thesis but i definitely talk about the density because it's a function of percentages and they continue to exist in in the major uh, section of my thesis this in fact helps me contribute in a certain sense which is to actually talk about what caste politics means in tamil nadu how is it different from let's say in andhra pradesh or even in uttar pradesh and a case in point is in my work with real verniers which we published in scroll a part of trivedi center for political data which uh, you are also a part of we talk about how tamil nadu continues to have almost 30 to 34 caste groups that are represented the most diverse in legislature in india so how did this come about and how women were left behind both qualitatively and quantitatively and also the case of dalits how they are quantitatively present but qualitatively absent in cabinets so yes there are a bunch of findings there exactly and i'm pleased i'm glad that uh... You continued this research and that will be published very soon. You have co-authored a book chapter with Andrew Wyatt showing what has been the social background of the MLAs in Tamil Nadu, not only under the years you covered in your PhD, but till today. And that's indeed fitting in a work and in a book that we will co-edit with Gilles Vernier's, whom we have just mentioned now. Well, this journey, Vignesh, this intellectual journey has not been always easy. We know it's tough. And we know that PhD students have ups and downs, that uh, sometimes it's uh, challenging. What kind of challenges, hardships of fieldwork, or not only fieldwork, but the drafting, the writing part, what was the most difficult? So, Professor, in fact... picking this topic in itself and to find uh, someone who would mentor me throughout was in itself a question so who would do that and therefore uh, i sort of draw your uh, recall uh, those uh, i mean uh, the years 2016 17 and 18 where i was incessantly writing emails to dr kapila and you uh, you know saying that oh i'm interested in this how do we go about this and it also led to a workshop that you had organized in ashoka university to sort of understand or learn uh, you know uh, data analysis Uh, and r and qgis and all of these things so right from the know how and the work that i have done now is uh, and, and this is this is in no way uh, you know me trying to sort of sell myself over but it is in a certain sense unique for tamil nadu the kind of treatment that the thesis puts tamil nadu through so to bring out empirical evidence uh, to, to reach people and ask the questions that we that they have not that they are not used to answering for instance one question that i asked someone was why did 
Kamraj lose? It's a very simple question. But for a state that is not used to remembering that past of, you know, how he lost to a student leader of the DMK, but also to embrace the fact that he is conserved as an idea today. That was one aspect, which is a part of the ideation and conceptualization of the thesis. And do I actually need to tread this path? This is one. And the way I'm positioning myself in the literature, you know, there is also, uh, you know, the conceptualization of Adda as, as an associational space by, by Professor Deepesh Chakravarti. Now, to pick on Deepesh Chakravarti's own concerns about Adda, which is of domination and exclusion, and then to look at reading rooms and to marshal, uh, you know, the theories put forth by Chris Bailey or even, uh, you know, Santria Freetag in terms of, you know, associational activity. And then to present the case of Tamil Nadu was an interesting story. This is not necessarily a social movement like the case of the Brazilian Workers' Party. It is a little beyond that. And therefore, a theoretical framework in itself. So this is how the thinking beyond just, you know, putting together the research idea uh, was, uh, you know, a little tricky. And then the writing in itself took me time. And I revisited it multiple times. You also looked at it at least four or five times in this process. Uh, the full draft, I mean. Uh, the chapters are another question altogether. But with respect to practicalities, uh, COVID was a big blow to the way in which I tried to sort of imagine my fieldwork. I thought it would be done in three years, all of it. But then that one extra year, uh, you know, COVID cost it. And finding funds to do the fieldwork is also one question, which is a case in point. The other aspect which was also tricky was to do this at a time when Tamil Nadu was going through 2021 elections. So you don't get appointments that easily, you know, you need to. And But this is in itself a learning for me, which is to say that how politicians, political class are also interested in, su in supporting such research, but are also constrained by their own predicaments. Lastly, one other struggle that, that I can think of is how then to sort of present Tamil Nadu in the context that is relevant for uh, someone who does, who's not interested in Tamil Nadu or for India for that matter. So that kind of an understanding came to me very late when I co-taught a course uh, with uh, Dr. Subir Sinha in School of Oriental African Studies, SOAS, called Partnerships Beyond Borders. It was about global, uh, you know, social movements. And then uh, to, to understand uh, what happened in Brazil, what happened in Cambodia, what happened in Cuba and all of that, and then to put together, you know, the thesis in a way that it is digestible was another interesting challenge. A lot of people have spoken about this. You know, I only have the experience of it. It is a lonely journey, yes, but I have sufficiently kept myself occupied and it is possible. For one such way was to write op-eds, you know, and to co-author with a lot of people. Uh, and in one such feedback form, you'd written that I think you need to stop writing op-eds now, Ignatius, start writing your thesis. But that kept me going. So that kind of uh, writing op-eds talking to people. I, in fact, got a gig with the DMK, a consulting gig with the DMK during the elections to share my findings, preliminary findings with them. So that kept me going. So my research journey was not necessarily lonely. The thesis journey also put me on a path of resilience uh, training in a certain sense. I did not have money for the last year uh, fees. And I went on a crowdfunding marathon. And I got to see how the community comes together and who funds who and how are people funded and a lot of that. And in that way, making my project actually truly public. So I don't owe it to my uh, savings fully or my parents' uh, earnings fully, but it is also partially funded by the public themselves, which in itself put, uh, changed me in a certain sense. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned this uh, material dimension because you're not the only one. 
So many Indian students are struggling these days, scholarships being too few. And uh, I'm glad you raised that. Yeah, nothing can replace a PhD, the making of a PhD as an initiation into uh, what is research. But as you said, it's a rather long journey, three, four years. In the course of these three, four years, have you changed your mind? Have you changed your hypothesis? Have you changed your research question? And if so, to what extent, why and how could you find a new sense of direction? Thank you, Professor, for that question. And in fact, in short, my understanding about and the opinion of political opportunism changed. And the way I had understood the change in Tamil Nadu before I started uh, my field work and this long field work, the criticism is that the DMK wanted Dravid Nadu. The DMK said it would eradicate caste. Have they? The DMK wanted Dravid Nadu. Did they secure it? The DMK says anti-Hindi agitations, but the schools that are run in Tamil Nadu and even a few run by the party people teach Hindi. So what about that? And the DMK says they are atheist, but there are a lot of uh, temples in Tamil Nadu. Uh, it's an extremely religious state. And therefore, my perception of this process was that, oh, maybe it is marked by uh, a lot of compromise. So the way I had perceived one chapter in itself, uh, chapter three, which is the transition through events or developments. So I thought, uh, and, I, and I had agreed with Margaret Ross Barnett uh, to a large extent that the DMK had watered itself down. But my fieldwork actually revealed that this was seen as a foot in the door and then as the first step towards creating change. So the reformation or the repurposing of the DK and the breakaway as the DMK as a political party. So this Justice Party was an election fighting machine. Periyar said it should become a social organization. And Anna said, no, we have to fight elections again. And he said, I am okay with the Independence Day. Periyar said Independence Day is a bad day. And then Anna Periyar said, uh, you know, no God's good enough. And But Anadurai said that there's only one community and one God. So So that sort of informed my notion of political opportunism. And today, as we see, the changes are visible. Uh, 50 years later, you do not have religious riots in Tamil Nadu. In fact, Professor Narendra Subramanian talks about this a lot in his work in terms of how conflicts are less. But this also does not yield or play into electoral outcomes. For instance, the case of the weak position of the BJP in Tamil Nadu, for example, and the same wave of majoritarian wave twice, 2014 and 19, did not hold any ground in Tamil Nadu. The party lost 38 to 2, if we were to consider Pondicherry as well. And in this case, it is 39 is to 1. And there is no single BJP MP candidate from Tamil Nadu. We have studied the communist movement in Kerala and then their opposition. But to see this in a cultural context, I think that made me look at it a little differently. And also, you know, the usual trope is that Kamraj was the nicest man ever. And then the person who defeated him was supposed to be the worst person ever. And then the criticism by the middle class elite is that, oh, this is the state that even defeated a leader like Kamraj. But when you unpack it, the leader that opposed Kamraj was also a student leader who went to jail in the defense of India rules at the time, which is like almost like emergency rules. He also spoke about repealing the 17th Amendment of Indian Constitution to his constituents. The 17th Amendment was that the Rayatwari lands also can be taken up by the government. So there is this kind of a redistributional politics and within the communities there. And people came together, they voted. It was almost 2,000 students uh, across the state that were working actively and almost 300, 400 students that were working in Virdhanagar for the DMK, which, which is a fascinating finding. 
Well, the last question, Vignesh, of course, is well, after the PhD, what? There is a life after a PhD, but it's a different life for sure. How do you intend now to take your research forward? You have a postdoc position does not necessarily helps you to continue with the same topic because you may have to adjust to a new research agenda, but we always expect from a student to publish the PhD, to, to turn it into a book. So what is the next step now, Vignesh, now that the PhD is over? Yes, as you said, it, academically speaking, I need to publish this into a book. So fingers crossed, I am writing the proposal at this stage and then pitch it, hopefully you know, in a good series with a good publisher. So that's the next step. But beyond that, as I mentioned before, I got an opportunity to consult for the DMK in the run-up to the 2021 elections when I was doing my fieldwork. So from then on, and even a little before that, I have been sharing my uh, research findings with the party and the government now, and the government then from time to time. I've also been writing and co-writing op-eds uh, almost quite a few now, and I wish to keep that going because um, I see a lot of potential in such dissemination. The other aspect is the postdoc. Yes, um, I do have a position with uh, uh, Professor Ward Berenshot and in the Royal Netherlands Institute of Southeast Asian and Caribbean Studies, which is based in the University of Leiden, and but he's also affiliated to the University of Amsterdam, so it's a multi-institution. This project looks at campaign financing which is an extension uh, of the way that I perceive elections, which is resource discourse and mobilization. So I'm looking at the resource aspect of it. And it's a comparative study between India and Indonesia. And uh, the states that I am you know, looking at in this project are uh, Andhra Pradesh, Orissa, and then Maharashtra and uh, Haryana. So Tamil Nadu is not there, which, which means that there is one more layer of uh, complexity that I can add to my understanding of Tamil Nadu to look at these four states and then, uh, you know, bring in my own findings about Tamil Nadu. So it's, it's, it's going in two directions as I see it, but I hope to sort of, you know, straddle both in meaningful and creative manners. You will for sure. You will for sure. We have no doubt about that. You're a man of many talents, Vignesh. Thank you so much for telling your story as a PhD student to... All of us, to those who did not know uh, what was behind this uh, text that will be turned into a book for sure. We are looking forward to uh, reading it in a book form now. Thank you again and good luck for the next uh, ventures you're involved in. Thank you very much, Professor. You've been listening to The World We Got This in conversation episode with Dr. Vignesh Rajamani and Professor Christoph Jaffrello. You can learn more about Vignesh's research on the website of the King's India Institute. This episode was brought to you by the School of Global Affairs. It was produced by me, Meghna Chaukar, and edited by Rachel Wall. You have been listening to The World We Got This podcast. To find out more about the research at King's on this and other global challenges, please visit our website, kcl.ac.uk. Please review, subscribe and share the podcast so you don't miss an episode and it's easier for others to find out about the series.